Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Monmouth, Illinois, uh, just hopping offices here these days. And we have got a great show for you today. We're going to be chatting with Philip Alberti, a commercial ag educator, and we're going to be talking about hemp. But before we get to Philip, we have to introduce our co-host with us every single week. We have local foods educator Katie Parker in Adams County. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are things in Monmouth? Oh, good. I had to blur out the background. Uh, people don't want to see that back there. It's it's leftover fair stuff. And it's all of the, the blue ribbons that didn't get awarded, which as we all here in Extension know they all get awarded. So. <laughs> <laughs> you should feel like a blue ribbon today. <laughs> I should. I've, by I've duct taped them to my back. So, <laughs> so when I'm walking away, people know who I am. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, how are you doing in Adams County, Katie? I uh, can't complain. Uh, it's some nice warm weather. Uh, so things are just it, growing like crazy. Is it warm? I thought it was just me. So <laughs> yeah, warm <laughs> yeah. and humid. That's right. That's for sure. And someone who I know is loathing this type of weather uh, is our resident Viking here, a horticulture educator, Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. And it is disgusting outside. I feel like I'm back in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it's just disgusting. Our windows, when we woke up this morning, were just coated in water. It's just like, what? <laughs> it's just, it hasn't rained. So it's just that humid. Yeah, yeah. I was doing some work in the yard this morning and I could wring my shirt out <laughs> after being outside for about half an hour, 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, Ken, it takes told nothing to start sweating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's you don't miserable. know if it's sweat or humidity. And Ken, I thought we told you we have to put on a fresh pair of shirts every time we do this show, but... <laughs> right here <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's freshly starched it seems yeah so um well ken katie uh we have an interesting topic for today we're going to be delving into the world of hemp um so let's introduce our guest for today so we are joined by commercial ag educator philip alberti philip welcome to the show chris thank you for having me so uh philip a little bit of reference uh for folks uh, i get where are you located and tell us a bit more about you know you know where you're at and what are you doing there Sure. So I'm located in Freeport, Illinois, but I am a, uh, a unit educator. So I handle a, a wide area in northern uh, northwest Illinois. Uh, Stevenson, Joe Davis, Winnebago counties is kind of my, my home turf. Um, and I started off the job as a, a typical row crop producer, a row crop uh, educator, I mean. And over the last three years has really uh, kind of transitioned to the industrial hemp production, uh, where that takes up 90% of my time. I don't think anybody cares what I think about corn or soy anymore. <laughs> it's all about hemp. Uh, and so I am the resident hemp guy for the state of Illinois. Uh, but yeah, primarily located up here, um, uh, work on the Highland Community College Research. Uh, there's a research center here that we kind of work with the ag students to do some trials and uh, also coordinate trials across the state. Um, I work in both corn and soy, but again, hemp is the, the primary area of focus the last few years. Well, I am, I am very happy you're here because hemp just so happens to be the topic of the day. Um, and so... When we dive into hemp, um, there's so many terms out there that I, you have done classes in my neck of the woods, and I've learned so much every time there's a field day or a workshop that occurs. But let's get into some definitions, because I think a lot of times folks, when they say, like, I'm, I'm a, a, I'm, I, I specialize in educating growers on hemp, they're thinking something else. So can we talk about what is hemp or like industrial hemp? Um, is it the same as cannabis or marijuana? Are, are we talking about the same plant? What's being grown here in Illinois? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, 
to be, to be honest, uh, there, there's really not much difference between uh, what we classify hemp and uh, cannabis or marijuana. The reality is they're both, if we want to look at taxonomy, they are both classified as cannabis sativa. The only distinguishing characteristic that will determine whether one plant in the field is cannabis, marijuana, or if it's hemp, is the amount of THC that is in the plant. And THC is a psychoactive component found in the cannabis plant. Um, and that is one of the regulated compounds that really determines whether or not we are dealing with say hemp or, or marijuana or cannabis. I like to think of it as the difference between field corn and sweet corn. They're both mm -hmm. corn plants, but they've been bred for two very different purposes. Um, historically, hemp has been bred for its uh, its industrial purposes, whether that was for textiles, rope, paper, construction materials, things of that nature. Whereas in recent years and primarily in, in America and the United States is where we've decided to grow hemp for cannabinoids. Um, these are things like CBD or CBG, other molecules that are found in the cannabis plant uh, that are related to, uh, but distinctly different from THC, which determines whether or not the plant is hemp or say marijuana. It seems like as researchers are dipping their toe into this field of study, you know, it's 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 difficult to study this, you know, being a, a schedule one uh, drug plant, really. Um, there's a lot of chemicals inside this plant that we just we're just figuring out about. But it, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about today, um, are, are do you deal with the plants that produce THC? Uh, it, it, I guess that's my question. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, well, we, we do. And, and to be honest, most of the cannabis plants, whether it's hemp or marijuana, are going to be producing um, THC to some extent. But the real kicker is how much is it producing? So um, currently, the legislation states that if it's above a sample of, 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 the, of the hemp or cannabis plant is above 0.3% THC, it's considered marijuana. And if it's below that 0.3% threshold, it's considered hemp. So the reality is, is it's, it's a very subtle distinction. And it's uh, one plant could one day in the field be a hemp plant and then two weeks later produce enough of this THC, enough of this molecule to make itself become a, a marijuana plant. So the only distinguishing, um, I guess, way to find out if it's one or the other is a laboratory analysis by a state approved lab. And, and that's that's really where the, the, the trick comes in with working with this plant is that we have one day where we're working with a hemp plant and the next day it could be uh, tested as a, say, a marijuana plant and we would have to have it destroyed. So there are some, some hurdles that we have to deal with when working with this plant and making sure that we are in fact dealing with hemp and not cultivating uh, marijuana, especially for, for our research purposes. And the same goes for producers in the state who are trying to grow this, which is really where a lot of the trickery comes in when trying to, to produce this crop. Does that happen a lot where like a plant just switches, like the THC level just becomes too high and it becomes a marijuana plant? Like that, is that a daily occurrence or is that like once in a million times? Uh, it's, a, it's a very common occurrence. I think most of the plants that are out there, most of the cultivars or varieties that growers are growing, if they are not careful, if they're not monitoring them throughout the season, will eventually go with what we call, they'll go hot, which means they go above that limit and where one day they could have been fine, the next they are now over that limit and will have to have their crop destroyed. Um, some states have had a real bad um, issues with this simply because of, of of bottlenecks and sample timing and when growers are trying to get this information. Um, and it can happen very, very fast, but it depends on the variety that you're growing, how quickly it'll accumulate these plant compounds. 
but I think it's very important for folks to understand that uh, for the most part, these varieties or cultivars will go above that limit if they are not harvested at the appropriate time. So for today, we're going to focus on hemp. So if you want your marijuana information, you'll have to go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> it's the after show. <laughs> <laughs> Late so, night. <laughs> <laughs> good growing after dark. <laughs> But Ken, you're bringing up an important point, though. I mean, these plants are very similar. They're essentially the same structurally, morph morphologically. The, um, they'll smell the same, look the same. The only thing that will really change, again, is that amount of THC that's in the plant, that psychoactive uh, component, which has, again, been a very interesting area for us and for myself as an educator when trying to educate the public on how to grow hemp and not cross over into that that next phase where um, the, the production practices are very similar. They're, they're essentially the same and we are taking information from, a, from an old industry and bringing it into a new one. Um, and it's just, it's provided some interesting challenges. So I appreciate you saying that because it's something that we deal with quite a bit, especially at the university. So when it comes to have, uh, typically I think most people hear about CBD. Is that what people are growing for in Illinois? Is that what growers are growing hemp for CBD or is there other things? Um, you can grow hemp and use it for? Uh, it's a great question. So CBD or uh, cannabidiol is just one of, as Chris said, hundreds of molecules that we are just beginning to scratch the surface on. Uh, CBD is the first one that took off in terms of a market uh, and for what growers were growing hemp for. But over the last few years, we've seen uh, we've seen this kind of shift uh, into other cannabinoids that plants produce. So again, different varieties will produce different types of compounds in different amounts. Um, but things like CBG or CBN are other cannabinoids that are starting to merge on the market and that some growers are starting to take advantage of um, in some capacity. Um, we're also seeing this in the marijuana industry with, with other cannabinoids being used in conjunction with each other, uh, CBD and CBG, and et cetera. So that's just one aspect of production. When we think about growing hemp for cannabinoids, we are focused on growing it for high quality uh, flour or for biomass for extraction that will contain high levels of these cannabinoids, um, but still be compliant and not test hot, like we said. So that's just one area. Uh, but we have to also consider hemp being grown, uh, what it was traditionally grown for, uh, even in, in the United States for, for many years uh, before World War II and even during World War II, was grain and fiber. And so, you know, we, we think about those types of production systems being much more analogous to a row crop production system, where we're growing for grain, it's very similar, like growing for a small grain, versus growing for, say, fiber, which is much more analogous to a hay or a forage operation where we are chopping the material, we're going to bale it and send it off for processing. So we have these kind of three different distinct production systems, you know, cannabinoids, grain, and then fiber. And each of those have their own end products that they go into. Uh, grain fiber, uh, the equipment, the machinery, we're much more suited to grow this type of, of hemp here in the Midwest. We're great at what we do when it comes to row crop production. And the systems in place are very similar uh, for grain and fiber hemp. The problem is the processing. So that was my roundabout way of saying there are three different types of production systems specifically for hemp, which makes my job uh, even more confusing for a lot of people when I'm trying to explain the type of trial that we're doing or the type of hemp that we're doing, we're growing, because there's just a lot of opportunity out there and still so much that we're learning. So kind of the growers you're working with, are they primarily doing it for 
CBD grain or fiber? Yes, 90%. I mean, I would say when, when this boom first kicked off, it was 99% of all hemp being discussed or talked about was for cannabinoids. Um, there was the, the dreamers and the, the ones out there who are really trying to make a, a push for grain and fiber, which we, we feel will probably be, as, as the paradigm is shifting, we're seeing more interest in that over the last few years. Um, but I'd still say, you know, 90% of the conversations that we're having, 90% of the growers that I'm working with are exclusively for cannabinoid hemp. And that's really just due down to lack of processing and distribution channels for these products. Um, you know, the, the materials that we're looking to put in for grain and fiber, for example, are replacing plastics and, and the paper industry, the tree industry. So this is, these are very well-established systems and will take some time before those products could even be used in the market in a, you know, a profitable or sustainable way. So can you walk us through a growing season with hemp but here in Illinois? We're kind of used to that growing corn and soybeans um, where we plant in the spring, harvest in the fall. Like how does that differ um, as well as inputs uh, and then planting and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll start with grain and fiber just because it's probably the most similar to what we would typically expect from, uh, from a regular growing season here in Illinois. Um, you know, you're going to be starting these in the field in, in April or May uh, from seed at a very high planting density. We're talking, you know, um, 25 to 50 pounds of seed per acre being seeded for these grain and fiber production systems. Um, it's a lot of seed. They're very small seeded. Uh, so typically using uh, some sort of milo or sorghum plates as a planter uh, um, system to get that properly set up. But we're looking at, again, uh, an April or May planting. And again, it depends on, on the end use. So if it's going for grain, uh, the plants are going to be pollinated. Uh, they're going to set seed and then they're going to be harvested for grain in likely late September, early October, depending on um, the, the variety and the conditions. Uh, whereas, say, something like fiber, where you're going to plant it right around the same time you would normally plant the grain crop, you're going to chop it at anthesis or flowering. When we start to see those flowering structures develop, and then the material is chopped and left in the field for a process called redding, which basically is a, a period of, of two to three weeks maybe where the material in the fiber is slowly being broken down by the dew, the wetting and drying process that naturally occurs here in Illinois. Other states that try to grow hemp, uh, they have to do either chemical redding or water redding. We get to do field redding in Illinois, which is basically set it in the, in the field, maybe rake it over, turn it over a few times, and then allow it to be bailed up and shipped off for processing. So chopping of that material will typically happen in about August um, or so in many cases. And then that material is bailed up in, in late August, early September in most cases. For, for cannabinoid hemp, we're looking at a very different production system where this is much more similar to, I, I would say tomatoes or a specialty crop where we are planting, typically gonna be transplanting these into the field at a rate of about you know, 1,200, 1,500 plants per acre, which is quite the far cry from 25 or 30 pounds of seed being planted in a field. It's a very different system. Row spacing is four to six feet per plant. And so this is just a very different system than uh, grain and fiber. Um, the, the reason for this is because of the way the plant grows and what we're trying to harvest it for. So I think folks need to understand that if you're growing for cannabinoids, they are developed primarily during the flowering portion of the growth of the plant. So we, we see these plants grow vegetatively and then in typically in mid-August or so they begin to flower. And for a cannabinoid grower, that is when the profitability starts to stack on because the cannabinoids are produced at the highest concentration throughout flowering. Um, 
So just a very different kind of system where you're going to be starting in a greenhouse, typically, whether it's from seed or clones and then transplanting them into the field um, in mid-June is usually when those transplantings are going to peak. Um, and that will continue uh, in the field all the way through September or, or October in many cases. But again, this depends on many things, the variety, when it starts to flower, um, and ultimately, most importantly, how, import, uh, how fast those cannabinoids are accumulating in the plant material. So at as you're growing cannabis sativa, you know, not for THC in Illinois, I imagine though you have to tell somebody in the government what you're doing and they have to keep track of things. Um, so I imagine a CB, CBD field, yes, that should needs to be inspected. Does like grain and forage hemp also follow the same guidelines? How often does an inspection take place in Illinois? It's a great question and you're absolutely right. Uh, this is something we don't really deal with when with corn and soy from a regulatory mm -hmm. standpoint. But yes, if you are a grower of hemp and this goes not just for regular producers, but for any university researchers, you are required to have a, a permit um, through the De Illinois Department of Agriculture to conduct this type of, of work, whether it is for research or for production. Um, and you have to follow the guidelines set forth by the IDOA. They are extremely similar uh, to regardless of the type of hemp that you are growing. And so while currently most of the concern regarding THC is surrounded in the cannabinoid space of hemp, grain and fiber producers are still required to produce hemp that is compliant and have it be tested and also do the similar reporting to the Department of Agriculture as if you were a cannabinoid hemp grower. Um, that may change in the future as we learn more about which varieties don't need to be tested quite as often, or we learn, we just learn more about these types of plants. But as it stands right now, there really is no difference uh, re regarding your sampling and reporting requirements, despite the type of hemp that you grow uh, here in the state of Illinois. Uh, but yes, it's, it's a very kind of stringent process and something that Growers are strongly encouraged to read all of those rules and regulations prior to getting a hemp license because it's not the easiest thing to grow and we still have limited information on how to harvest, when to harvest, um, you know, let alone for this crop and then looking at a specific variety. Uh, we have a lot of work to do there. So with these inspections and if somebody sends a sample off um, to get tested, what happens if their hemp has too much THC? What happens to those plants then? So uh, by the, the requirement right now is that growers are required to alert the Department of Agriculture within 30, uh, prior, 30 days prior to their expected harvest date. This allows the Department of Agriculture to, if they choose, um, because you are subject to testing, if they choose to send a sampling agent out, um, they will sample your field and essentially determine uh, if that hemp is compliant or not. In some cases, the uh, Department of Agriculture will not get sent as a, a in, as an ins for an inspection, but you are still required to prove that the material that you are possessing or harvesting uh, is um, compliant with, uh, and that you are sending these material off to a state-approved laboratory, of which there are six in the state of Illinois. So there are many laboratories that run analysis, but if it's not a state-approved one, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, to the Department of Agriculture. You have to, to follow those specific rules and guidelines for where those hemp samples get sent off to. So essentially what they do is they'll come out, they will take a sample following the USDA sampling guidelines uh, for when and how the plant material is to be uh, sampled. They will send it off to a laboratory and determine the amount of that THC that is in the plant. And based on just that one value alone, the Delta 9 value in the state of Illinois will determine uh, whether or not you can harvest that material um, or and have it go into the supply chain. And again, that number is 0.3%. Uh, 
just to give a little bit of a comparison, I suppose many of the, the, the marijuana strains that are out there currently are testing above like 20, 25% THC. The, again, the threshold for hemp is 0.3. So a very big difference in terms of the uh, amount of THC that's psychoactive material that's in these plants as opposed to that industry. And Illinois uses the USDA threshold, correct? Do, can others, I've heard other states have a bit of a higher one. Is that correct or is that incorrect? You know, there's been some letter of the law and spirit of the law interpretations of the, of the, the hemp bill. And ultimately each state is using the USDA um, rules for guidance, but is allowed to make their own state approved plan that the USDA will approve. So we have kind of the federal program, which, um, you know, most of the country will follow, but then within that each individual state, and it depends on the state that you're in, which rules you're going to follow, because it could be that you're following the USDA guidelines, like a state like New York, who's deferred to make their own state plan and said the USDA should be the, the rules that they follow versus say here us in Illinois, where we have our own specific set of rules that we're following that are similar to the USDA's, but not exactly the same. And specifically relating to total THC and Delta 9 THC, um, very important terminology that we can, we can discuss shortly here, but uh, you're gonna have to make sure that you're following the rules and regulations for the state, tribal, uh, or you know, the, essentially the nation that you're in uh, but make sure that you're following those to the T. Uh, so I've been hearing about people spraying their hemp with Delta-8. What is that? And is this something legal to do? So Delta-8 THC is probably one of the, the, the hottest trends right now, um, or the, the hot button issues in hemp production across the country uh, for a few reasons. And, and really what Delta-8 THC is, is it's another one of those cannabinoids that gets produced by the plant. But we, the, the hemp plant and cannabis in general, for the most part, does not produce Delta-8 in significant amounts. Uh, so what is happening is growers are looking for alternative ways to uh, make a profit. And so when they send off their material, their hemp, their CBD material to a processor, they can have that material uh, be essentially altered in uh, via um, several laboratory processes we don't got to get into, but they convert this CBD material the cannab cannabidiol into Delta-8. So again, it doesn't get produced a lot in the plant itself, but it can be converted into it um, via several of these uh, specific laboratory processes or um, um, it's called an isomer isomerization process. But basically growers are trying to find an alternative way to make some profit. And Delta-8 is kind of in this legal gray area where it's not technically illegal and it's not really legal either. It just hasn't been defined by the USDA or by any of the other state programs. Um, and so slowly what we're starting to see is some states are prohibiting the sale of it and uh, not allowing it to go into the supply chain because Delta-8 THC is psychoactive and is very similar to some of the other cannabinoids like THC that we're concerned with. It's just It just seems that the regulators haven't gotten around to making that, that change just yet but it's slowly coming down the pipeline, pipeline uh, from each state where they're, they're just determining whether or not they want to prohibit the sale of that or not. Uh, but it's, it's kind of a, an interesting situation right now that growers are trying to find themselves in where we have an oversupply of hemp material, whether it's flour or biomass for extraction. Some growers even have an excess of the CBD oil itself. Um, and so they're just looking for alternative ways to convert that material into something that has profit potential and right now that's Delta-8 THC. And so they're using, uh, it's called hemp-derived 
uh, delta-8 because it doesn't grow a lot in the plant itself. It has to be derived from plant material that's already been grown um, in the secondary um, extraction process. It feels like this whole last couple of years, uh, the world of CBD, hemp, all of that has just been ahead of science. And it sounds like this Delta-8 thing is just another one of those things that they're just, it's hard to keep up, I suppose. It absolutely is. Um, and, you know, the lack of a kind of regulation around some of these products and, and just the fact that there's, you know, it feels like every day we're learning about a new cannabinoid that growers should try to grow for or that there's a market for. It just keeps changing. It was CBD, then it was CBG, and now it is Delta-8. It seems like the hot button one. Um, it just goes to show that this is such a new plant. Not not very often does a uh, such a well or a, uh, a, a material or a plant that's not studied like this becomes just legal out of nowhere without any previous research, uh, specifically here in the States. I mean, you can look at other, other countries who are, are a little bit more well-documented in their, their studies on cannabis as a whole, uh, but as at the USDA or, or here in the country, we in the US, we have to follow specific testing standards, safety standards that were designed by the government. So regardless of the information that we have publicly or from these other places, it doesn't necessarily apply to how we're enforcing or making regulations uh, surrounding these products. Um, and that extends not only into you know, what these molecules are and which ones should be regulated, but the products themselves and how they're regulated from a safety and health standpoint uh, for consumers. I, I think we're going to dive into regulations here in a bit, but I just, this sounds like such a risky crop, Philip. <laughs> um, and maybe it's just our, our, our pathway of discussion, but um, you, you mentioned kind of a glut in the market um, and just that, that risk of increase of THC. Uh, I, I'm curious. Okay, so I read an article. Um, there was a, a greenhouse researching this, and they were able to replicate THC increase in a very controlled environment. I know a few years ago, chatting with other CBD growers, they're saying, well, we think it might be related to the drought. Um, you know, it was maybe an environmental stress. Um, do we know, do we know, and you spoke on this a little bit already, but do we know specifically what's the cause? Is it genetic? What, what's happening inside the plant? It's a great, great question. We, we think, we're quite confident at this point now that it's mostly genetic is really what's going to determine, uh, you know, not even just the amount of cannabinoids that are getting produced in this plant, but the ratios and how they're being produced in accordance with each other. Um, Cornell University did some really great work, um, Dr. Larry Smart out of Cornell, and they really pushed the emphasis on looking at environmental stressors and its impact on THC production. It, it in many cases, environmental stresses, while they altered the amount in total of cannabinoid that got produced, they did not alter the concentrations, which is a very important distinction. Uh, and especially from a regulation standpoint, when we are looking at a concentration, 0.3% of the material versus say, you know, a, a total or a, a yield, how much total cannabinoid did it get produced? Again, it's a concentration. So that's a very important thing. Uh, so we really believe in just even the work that we've done here at the University of Illinois with the Midwestern Hemp Database is that we, we're really seeing that most of, for the most part, we're looking at stable genetics uh, that are producing compliant crops. And the reason this is such a concern is because there's not seed certification. And so we have a lot of folks out there who think they're breeders putting material out that is not stable, where it's really more of a cultivar, it's being maintained, but it's not going to produce true to seed and it's not going to produce reliably. Um, we're seeing this, you know, from the growers we work with, we're seeing this in the variety trials that we're putting on ourselves, um, just a lack of stability. So 
for the most part, genetics and finding a good stable, uh, a good breeder, a good seed company with a history, a proven track record is going to be very important. But for the most part, environmental uh, characteristics are not going to alter uh, compliance as much as we originally thought. All right. So say you've successfully grown your hemp, it doesn't get too hot. Um, how do you go about harvesting that? Maybe you've kind of hinted at this already. Um, and then once you harvest it, who's going to buy that, that hemp from you? Uh, oh, well, this is going to be a long answer for you. So <laughs> it depends. You know, when we first started growing hemp three years ago, it was like these two different channels. You could grow it for high quality smokable flour, or you could grow it for biomass for extraction. Well, that was before every state in the country decided they wanted to grow hemp. And so we went from having, you know, where supply and demand, there was such a small supply and a high demand that it didn't matter what material was on the market, growers were finding processors because they just needed to fill the orders. But then oh, over the last few years, there's such a high supply of material that nobody really wants what we were calling biomass for extraction, which was, you know, use a, a chopper, go out there and chop this material, uh, dry it, put it in a bag and then take it off to a processor for extraction that just ain't going to cut it anymore because the, the value, the quality is just so low with the amount of material we have. And so what we really kind of found is we found a shift from away from this term biomass where everybody is now just growing high quality flour for extraction. So what does this mean? They're not out there chopping it anymore. They're growing less acres, growing higher quality plants, and in most cases, hand harvesting or using some sort of machinery that keeps the quality of the material intact. Um, and that's just the first part. That's the harvesting. There's a whole other, you know, backside of this, which is the drying and storage of this material and manicuring, where you're essentially trimming the floral material uh, to give it to, a, to, again, a higher quality. So it's this whole other process on the back end that growers, I don't think we're necessarily aware of coming from other crops where you have to dry this material and prevent it from, store, from, from molding. You have to trim it. Uh, and kind of manicure it so it's a higher quality, higher concentration of cannabinoids. The processors find it attractive, um, but it's just so much work that goes into this. If you ask any hemp grower how long it takes them to even, you know, dry or cure one hemp plant, and now think about acres and acres of this material, it's a very time-consuming, labor-intensive process, and it's just a lot more work, uh, I think, than people gave it credit for, which is you know, indicative of the acreage decrease, the number of growers that we currently have versus say from 2019. Um, it's reflected those changes in, in the realistic expectations that growers have for, for growing this material. So now where do you go with it? Theor theoretically, theoretically, you'd have a processor that takes this material off your hands. You'd have an elevator that you could take this material to. We don't have any of that. Um, you know, I've been working in this space for three years now, and the reality is I still can't tell our growers where to go with the material most of the time because we don't have large-scale processing that's taking place right now. And if we did, they're not very visible because they don't need to be. They have enough material. They have access to this material. It's not hard for them to find. Uh, but we, we're not given a list of processors. You know, some states, for example, have a lot of that material. Um, if you're a hemp grower processor, and you're licensed, all of your information is publicly available. People can contact you, find out where you are, um, and, and maybe make a business transaction with you. We don't really have that here in Illinois, which has made it very difficult. Um, and a lot of the processors that we do have are vertically integrated. So they're growing their own material, they're processing their own material and distributing it um, themselves, which is uh, a very you know more sustainable business model if you can go that route, because you really don't need that much material to keep uh, to keep production going, to keep the processing going. Um, 
So theoretically, that's where we'd like to be able to send folks, uh, but it's just really hard to, to find a le legitimate processor um, who's, you know, kind of continually operational and ultimately at a price that the grower can, can sell the material at to, to make a, pro uh, a profit. So that's kind of like the long answer of what this kind of journey would be like as a hemp grower. And the, the reality is we don't have too many answers uh, for folks right now be because of this. Um, and then we could talk about too, you know, the, 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 uh, um, the lack of regulation surrounding these products, the testing of them, and how that's also impacted what processors are doing, the decisions that consumers are making as far as where they're buying their product. It's not just good enough for it to be locally grown or locally processed. They want to know more about it. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of kind of hurdles that have, growers were allowed to grow this crop, but they weren't necessarily showed how to how to grow it properly, or, or here, here, here's how you get rid of it. Here's how you make a profit on it. And so, you know, we're three years in, and we're still, we're still just scratching the surface on those questions, and and trying to figure out what a good equilibrium is for supply and demand um, right now. But we still have material from a year, two years ago that processors are trying to get through, or that growers are trying to unload. Oh, that would be uh, kind of nerve wrecking. Yeah. So if someone wants to process their own um their own hemp for say cbd or whatnot um what is that process uh so yeah that's um it, there's a several different extraction methods out there um and i would like to kind of make a distinction too between processing and extraction so in the state of illinois you can be a processor but you are not an extractor you could be packaging product you could be doing any post-harvest menu um any post-harvest manipulation of the product technically makes you a processor. So if you're a grower and you want to trim or manicure or dry your, your material yourself, you're likely going to have a processing license as well. A fraction of those processors are extraction facilities or those who have the capabilities to do extraction, which is drawing those cannabinoids, a CBD, out of the plant material and putting it into um, a crude oil, which can then be put into CBD oils and tinctures, gummies, lotions, salves, all that type of stuff. So it's kind of a weird distinction that we don't know of the some 600, you know, folks that are processing in the state of Illinois. We don't know how many extractors we truly have uh, that are extracting, extracting material to be used in products um, to go into the supply chain. So what that looks like, though, there's a bunch of different types out there. There's ethanol extraction, which is typically the most common form. There's a super critical CO2 extraction, butane, hexane extraction. Um, and all of these are, for the most part, um, very expensive machinery to, to, to use. And then it only really takes you to the first step, which is this crude oil, which is another whole... I know the whole bag of bones that we have to talk about with, with hemp is you, you take it, you process it into this first step, which is crude oil, but that is essentially useless until we can turn it into a, a secondary product, which is distillate or isolate, which is what we actually see sold on the market in many cases. So there's, there's processing, there's a first round, there's refining of this material, and then there's packaging, labeling, and distribution. Um, so if we were to look into doing this, you know, these are $100,000, $200,000 pieces of equipment, in some cases even more, depending on the amount of material you want to be able to process at a given time. Uh, but typically, ethanol extraction um, is the most common form, and we're basically pulling out that plant material into a solvent, alcohol, um, heating it up so it, we evaporate a lot of that excess material, and we are left with this a uh, very oily, uh, concentrated substance, which can then be used into other products in the CBD market. 
So, okay, speaking of the CBD market, there are so many claims out there too. And Philip, I think you and I were in the same room once when someone said you should feed your old dog CBD because it turns them into puppies. And you could feel like, I think I saw a vein pop out in your forehead. I, I definitely um, gasped inaudibly, but it was, and all of the scientists in the audience were like, yeah. So anyway, there's so many claims out there, but let's say I want to be a purveyor of CBD. How do I know what I'm getting? Does it work? Like, does it do what people say? Like, what's some of the science say behind this stuff? Yeah, you know, I think the real interest around CBD became because of, of the, the, the materials, ep, um, epidio, um, gosh, I'm going to get the name wrong here, but there were several um, CBD-specific uh, medicines that have been created, and uh, the name is eluding me right now, but it's used to treat seizures um, in, in those who suffer from epilepsy, and it's been proven to be very successful in treating that, but this is a very specific, it's a very targeted and a concentrated formulation of CBD um, and cannabinoids that is used to treat these, these ailments. There's been tons of research and tons of literature, both here in the States and elsewhere, supporting the use of cannabinoids for their potential in treating other disorders. But we don't have enough to say one way or the other how true they are. Um, and, and ultimately, it comes also down to the product itself that's being sold. So how do you know what you're getting? Well, first off, every single product that's sold should be tested. It should have a, uh, a usually a little QR code or a link to the results of a what we call a certificate of analysis, which is this material or its batch where it came from has been tested, and this is the the results of that test. Um, the problem is is that's not really regulated, uh, and you have to you can't just take for granted that because it's on the label. Uh, it's on this material, it's being sold in stores that it's going to be what it says it is, like it would for, be for any other product that you buy. I mean, if you go buy some Cheerios, you're not worried that it's going to have, you know, wood chips in your Cheerios. You, you're very confident that it's been inspected. There's a process, there's health and safety standards that are being followed, um, you know, for the most part. And so that's what you're expecting. But with can, um, CBD products, and this goes tinctures, gummies, all that stuff, is it's very easy to essentially fake a lab report. You know, the folks are savvy, they can create accounts, they can manipulate documents. And so even if you see this certificate of analysis or you're able to verify, the, oh, this looks like a legitimate product, you know, that could be a fake report. And so uh, there's no regulation right now that says, hey, this is a material, this is a lotion, it needs to have this, this, and this on the label, it needs to have been tested in this, this, and this way, uh, and you can feel confident of that. We don't have any of that right now. Wow. So you are left as a consumer to either trust the company that's selling these materials to you or to do your own independent investigation. And what does that look like? That means calling the laboratory for the certificate of analysis. That means looking at the batch number of the product and verifying that, yes, it was in fact this company inspected this material and this is the, re the results. So you know what you're getting. Uh, there's no overwatch, you know, who watches the watchman type thing. There's none of that going on right now in this industry. And so um, if you find a store, you know, in a lot of these tobacco shops or little gas stations that are selling this material, it's just a grower who got this material. They packaged it, they labeled it, and they have agreed to sell it. And that's as far as it goes. So if you're looking to really verify the material, it, it, you have to do a secondary level of investigation on who's producing these products and ultimately what those test results are, because you know, they can be very few and far between. They can be doctored in some capacity or just completely, completely fabricated, which is scary. Um, 
This goes beyond just cannabinoids and the amount of material where, you know, it could be essentially a, uh, a marijuana that's being sold as hemp. But what about heavy metals and pesticides, insecticides? There's no safety standards for those products right now, uh, especially here, not, not just here in, you know, the States, but in, uh, or not in Illinois, but in the States as well. So um, that's led to the development of certain things like the CBD Safety Act, which is up for contention right now. Um, some growers are for it, some are not, but essentially requiring a certain set of safety standards uh, and testing requirements for all products to be sold. Um, we're just not there yet, but we're slowly getting inching and, and going in that direction. So a lot, to, a lot of stuff to consider. It's kind of scary out there. You know, we can't say one way or another whether or not these products work because that's a relative term. What does work mean to you? Is it a placebo effect? Are you, you know, all that type of stuff is really kind of out of my, my purview. Um, but when it comes to labeling and what that means and what's in the product, the, it's still very concerning uh, for, for a lot of folks um, and, and for educators too. And we're trying to tell people to be wary of these products. It's not that we're trying to scare you off, but just make sure you're aware of what's kind of happening right now. I, I think that's important. I might even type that up in the show notes, how to double check your CBD product, just in case people don't hear that right away and they can read it. Yes. When I first started this, it was all, hey, if they have a certificate of analysis, you're probably in pretty good shape. And now that's transitioned to it's not enough anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it was that was like the first level of, you know, of, of safety was, all right, look for the certificate of analysis. And then folks figured out, OK, they're telling us about this. They're teaching folks about this. Let's how can we manipulate it at the next step? Um, and it's just pretty remarkable. The, the, the types of softwares out there and editing people are pretty savvy. They can make stuff up pretty easily. So. Uh, now we're at the point where it's not just if they have it, it's you have to do your own secondary research on these products. Can you? I know you're putting your Photoshop skills to to use in this. You just you better watch out. <laughs> They're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Philip, you mentioned earlier, you know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like everybody and their uncle was going to be growing um, hemp and stuff like that, and a lot of that is that novelty is kind of worn off, and there's not nearly as many people growing it. It seems like. Um, is there still a lot of interest here in Illinois for growing it or is that kind of tailed off as well? Yeah, it's, it's a little hard to say exactly how much it's tailed off. I'd say 100% from an acreage standpoint, there has been a significant drop by, you know, upwards of 50% uh, in some cases for the amount of acres planted or um, those that were licensed to be planted. You know, you can say you're going to plant it and then actually getting out there and planting it and then harvesting it, the material. Uh, there's a lot that can happen along the way. We know that acreage has dropped. We know that number of growers who are licensed has stayed actually the same, if not increased year over year, which tells us less, uh, more growers, significantly less acres. So instead of growing 20 acres, you, a grower might be growing a half or one acre or two acres or, you know, something like that. But also we have to consider that the licensing is on a rotating basis. So growers have the option to do one, two or three years of production at, the, at a time. Um, and so if you're a grower in the first year and you thought you were in this for the long haul, you could have got a three-year license and then stopped growing after the first year in 2019. So the, the, the national average says we still have the same, if not more growers, but we have way less acres. Uh, and so this could be folks growing it for hobbies. This could be smaller production. Um, but yes, a lot less interest in it just simply because it's not the, the cash cow that we thought it was. It's gone the way of hops, which happened here in Illinois you know, a decade or so ago, maybe less. Um, it's a very similar cautionary tale with, with, with that where there, there needed to be an equilibrium that needed to kind of figure itself out uh, so many market dynamics. 
But I find it fascinating that the CBD market is growing as a whole. Consumer-based products are increasing, yet growers still can't find a way to get rid of this product. When we're selling more than we ever have uh, for CBD products, it's in everything from treats for dogs and you know animals to you know um, to, to lotions and salves and things like that. Uh, but it still just hasn't trickled down yet into uh, the grower space. And there's hope that there will be a rebound in the, in the coming years where there'll be a, a, an opportunity. Um, with that, it's probably gonna come regulation uh, and more safety standards. It's gonna get worse before it gets better in most cases. Uh, but that's kind of what folks are clinging on to is the fact that they might be able to continue growing this on a small scale uh, and keep growing, find a good opportunity, and then go from there. Um, but it'll be hard to say that three-year kind of rotating license will be for next year. So I think, you know, 2022, we'll kind of see this full cycle of what's happened and be able to really tell, you know, do we have more growers or do we actually have less? And it's just inflated by these licenses that we have. If you're interested in growing hemp, uh, is this something that someone can do in their backyard or are there more requirements in getting started? Yeah, so uh, in the state of Illinois, there's a couple requirements uh, for production. If you're an indoor producer, I think it's, um, I could be wrong here, but I think 250 or 500 square feet, there is a requirement for the size of the, of the um, environment that you're growing in for indoor production and for outdoor quarter of an acre is the requirement that has to be licensed. Now, does it mean you have to harvest all that material? Not necessarily, uh, but to be able to get a license, you have to have that much of an acre or an era of that much land dedicated to this type of production. Uh, that's, that's uh, take all that information is taken in when you apply for a license. Um, you know, they're gonna want a, uh, a GPS coordinates, maybe an aerial view of where you're intending to grow this material. Uh, but it does have to be classified as a farm. So that is a very loose term in the eyes of uh, the departments of agriculture. There's a lot of things that can be farms. So ultimately it, you'll have to apply and they will determine whether or not um, they will give you that licensing. Uh, I would say, no, we're not gonna be growing hemp in your backyard in urban Chicago. Um, it's probably gonna be you know, more of a of rural, rural type thing or specific growing uh, indoor facility dedicated to this type of production, greenhouses, et cetera. Um, so backyard grower, yes, but it depends on what your backyard is. Um, you know, the requirements for it are no other, no, not really different than any other specialty crop. Uh, it's high input, labor intensive. There's no herbicides, insecticides, pe uh, pesticides that are approved for hemp in Illinois. So you're using basically organic control methods uh, right now. Uh, plastic culture, tillage, cultivation, those types of things. Um, so that's typically how it's grown. And again, because of the size requirements, you're not just growing two or three plants in your backyard and, and getting a license. It's, it's going to be a little bit more than that. For those that are currently growing or have grown in the past, um, is crop insurance, does it cover hemp yet? Yes, it does. Uh, there is multi-crop peril, uh, multi-peril crop insurance right now. They, problem is though is that if you have to have a year under your belt of hemp growing experience to get the insurance so they can set a standard for yield and for what that compensation might be should something happen so it's again a new thing so your first year growing hemp you're going to be you know without a paddle when it comes to uh with insurance um and then even still you know there's a it's, it's, in, it's in kind of a weird phase right now because some insurance is going to require that you have a contract ahead of time or a buyer for them to insure the material, which again, you know, honestly, if you don't get into this, unless you, you have a good line or a contract ahead of time uh, to, 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 to sell this material. Otherwise we just really don't know where you're going to go with it uh, for the time being. Um, 
so yeah, it's just a lot to consider uh, with that. Well, Philip, you mentioned that there's um, no pesticides labeled for this crop, so there must be no pests, correct? As uh, nothing must eat or disease hemp. No, or am I totally wrong? <laughs> uh, I think that's one of the urban myths. Just like uh -huh. that, the, you can grow uh, it's ditch weed, so it can grow anywhere. You know, that's mm -hmm. not the hemp that we're talking about. That's old hemp remnants from World War II or from even further. That's been essentially naturally selecting itself in, road, in our ditches and roadways and that we've been trying to eradicate and it just keeps coming back. That is not the same hemp that we're growing for cannabinoid extraction. So uh, pests, absolutely there's pests. Uh, we have so many of them out here in corn, corn and soy country and a lot of them will uh, move over to hemp. Uh, whether to say they are economical, we just don't have enough information yet what those thresholds are, you know, what causes enough damage. And, and, and essentially too, you know, for cannabinoid hemp, you're focused on the flowering material, so not the foliar, the leaf structure. So there's a lot of leaf diseases, foliar diseases out there, but the um, insects that like the leaves, but they don't necessarily like the floral material itself. So there's just still so much that we're learning. But yeah, I mean, uh, corn earworm, uh, Eurasian hemp borer, corn borer, they all find their way in hemp just fine. Uh, and Japanese beetles, you'll see them on hemp quite a bit. And then as soon as the corn starts silking, they move right on over to the corn. So uh, we have a lot of insects, a lot of diseases. Um, we're, we're working on a catalog right now. So sending samples into plant clinics, figuring out uh, and actually saying, or, you know, categorically this type of disease or this uh, fun, uh, fungus is present here in Illinois. These pests, we're still building out that catalog, but um, it's not universally resistant to these crops. It is resilient. Uh, or to these pests, I mean, it is a resilient plant, uh, but it definitely has uh, pest problems out there. Um, and it depends also on the variety too. We're, we're noticing that right now. Okay. Uh, just curious, is the U of I plant clinic, can they accept hemp samples? They can. Uh, we are looking primarily right now uh, only specific to the floral material. It's or sorry, to the, the foliar material. So foliar. leaf stems and roots. They do not, uh, are not permitted to take floral samples for disease, uh, but foliar samples, uh, absolutely. So you mentioned ditchweed earlier. So if somebody's out, out and about and they find a hemp or marijuana plant out in nature, what should they do? Uh, don't grab it and put it in your car and start driving around. <laughs> you have no idea what you are putting in your car. And if you were to get pulled over and get tested or something like that, there's a chance, there's a good chance it could, it could contain too much um, you know, of that THC component. I would say in any case, if you're looking to eradicate this material, if you want to contribute to research where we are doing uh, plant collections of that feral material to incorporate into breeding programs, reach out to us. Uh, don't go on a, a personal little journey of collecting hemp, um, especially if you're not licensed or it's not on your land. You know, that's those are things that you have to be very cautious of. Uh, but in any case, being permitted uh, have, having a, a license and, um, uh, and if not reaching out to us because we are licensed, uh, we have the permits to come out and make those collections um, and things like that. So it's just very important that folks understand that even if you, you know, you, you're not sure what the material is, if you ultimately get uh, in trouble for, you can get in trouble for it. You, you know, you, you have a material that could be either marijuana or, or hemp, and you simply won't know unless you get it tested. Um, but we are very interested in doing these collections because, we basically have uh, nature selecting these genetics for us over many, many years, and we want to reclaim some of those um, 
those legacy traits just in case we want to incorporate them into breeding programs. So we spent a long time trying to burn and eradicate this hemp and now we want it back and we are trying to collect it so we can preserve the genetics um, and hopefully use it. It's, uh, it's actually pretty cool. I was just on, on campus. Uh, Dr. DK Lee has a, uh, a plot out there on campus for grain and fiber hemp where they are growing out the feral populations that we collected over the last few years. They're assessing them for good traits. You know, these things are 10, 12, 13 feet tall and hopefully incorporating those into breeding programs. So it's pretty neat to see um, the evolution of this and how material we collected two years ago was grown in a greenhouse, increased for production, and now is out in the field finally after a couple of years um, uh, for breeding. So uh, contributing to that, Western Illinois University, Win Fippen uh, has, has been leading the charge on that. If you're in Wisconsin, Shelby Ellison from UW-Madison and down here in Illinois, DK Lee uh, or myself, uh, reach out and we would be glad to, to come scope out um, some areas and do some sampling. Well, that was a lot of great information. Uh, Philip, is, is there a uh, online resource, uh, anything like that, that we can link to in our description? Yeah, so the Midwestern Hemp Database is actually a project that myself and three other uh, researchers from Purdue University, UW-Madison, and Michigan State, uh, we've all worked together to consolidate information on variety performance and production strategies for growers um, over the last two years. Um, but not just that, we have a lot of good information on cannabinoid development and what these varieties are producing, what growers might be able to expect in terms of a growing season, you know, the growing season calendar. When will these varieties be flowering? Uh, when do I expect to harvest them? And then also sampling. Uh, the data that we've collected, we have over 750 samples that were submitted last year for a cannabinoid analysis um, that will change from year to year uh, on how these varieties performed. Uh, but we're going to be doing this testing again this year. And it's just a, an opportunity for growers to, one, contribute to data uh, collection and kind of data sharing, uh, where we've provided discounted, excuse me, we've, we've provided discounted testing costs uh, to contribute to the project. Uh, but also for those of you who don't necessarily want to participate, the information is all publicly available. Um, and you are essentially able to uh, kind of use your own filters to determine which information is the most useful for you, whether that's variety performance or cannabinoid development. And it's kind of an interactive tool that allows you to, to mess around with all the data that we've collected at our research stations the last two years. Well, well, Philip, thank you very much for being here on the show. We certainly do appreciate your time. I know you're super busy, you know, commercial ag educator, U of I Extension, and the statewide Illinois Extension hemp guy. You, you get all of you. I guess some several questions and they just get funneled all up to you. And I'm sure it's happening everywhere. So thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks to our co-host with us every single week, Katie. Ken, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you, Philip and Chris and Ken. Thank you for always joining. Yes, thank you, Philip. Thank you for answering those questions. We've pawned off on you over the years. <laughs> and Chris and Katie. Chris and Katie, thank you, as always. And let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. Uh, we are going to be talking turf grass. And so that should be a fun show going from hemp to grass. I promise. I, I won't tell that joke. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from that. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.